Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. So I love technology. Uh, I don't know much about it, and I don't assume that because we have it, that we are superior to our predecessors, like many people in our culture believe. Uh, but, but it's pretty cool. Even something as basic as having electricity, right? Like we, that's something for sure that we take for granted until that bill comes, right? Uh, and we think, oh, man, like that's, no, I'm not taking this for granted anymore. Even now, uh, moving homes, we didn't have an air conditioner in old home. Now we do. And I'm like, I'm, save, I'm trying to conserve as much energy. I'm very conscious of how much energy we are using now. I've become that dad with that thermostat. We got <laughs> to keep it at that level or I'm not paying for this, right? Uh, but we do so much with it. Uh, you know, I wrote this sermon at midnight, whenever it was, because we have electricity, because we have light bulbs heating our water and powering our laptops and phones and tablets, heating up our food to help us cook, keeping our fresh food fresh in our fridge. You know, the sweet sound of my electric kettle boiling at 90 degrees, exactly what I need to brew my AeroPress, right? Like, that's, that's a beautiful sound to me. It's an amazing thing. And even something as simple as the light bulb. The light bulb is an amazing thing. The light bulb has revolutionized modern life. And in fact, it's actually altered our biology. Melatonin is a natural occurring hormone produced by the pineal gland, which is located just right here. So if you think about uh, a vision from MCU where he has the stone, uh, that's where your pineal gland is. And your pineal gland, what it's responsible to do is that it secretes melatonin. And melatonin, put, putting this really uh, sort of uh, brashly, is it, it secretes, uh, the pineal gland secretes melatonin and it helps you to sleep. It tells you when it's time to sleep and when it's time to wake up. And our recent ancestors, uh, you know, up until very, very recently, melatonin would begin to rise according uh, uh, to dusk when the sun went down. And it would peak at about midnight and then it would teeter off around sunrise. But due to the artificial lighting that we have today, that we live with every single, ta- every single day, there's actually a two-hour delay on that, on that process. The incandescent light bulb has changed our biology. In fact, darkness and light can seriously alter even our behavior. In an article uh, that outlined the ways that we are affected by darkness, uh, Maya Croth, she noted this. Regardless, this is quote, Regardless of where you are on the planet, where you live, the darkness of your environment can affect your health and even your behavior. In architecture, uh, there's a term called sick building syndrome. This is UTS. Has been used, and this, this, u- this syndrome, uh, this word has been used to describe buildings that make the people who live and work in them sick, in part because they are too dark. Research has also shown that students who sat in darker parts of the classroom did worse on tests than their classmates who sat near a window. And a 2013 study found that dark environments made people more likely to lie or even behave unethically. And so the physicality of darkness and light can affect us in all sorts of ways, from our moods to our circadian rhythms to possibly even our ethics. And Paul here will use the metaphors of darkness and light to help us respond to Ephesians 1 to 3. Darkness and light, uh, they, they guide uh, this portion of scripture here. 
He wants to help us understand what it means to take off our old, our old humanity and walk in our new humanity. And for Paul, old humanity is marked by darkness, where new humanity is marked by light. And as apprentices of Jesus, we're to walk in the light of our new humanity. And Paul is saying this, that to follow Jesus is to walk a cruciform life of light that pushes back the darkness in our lives and in the world. That to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, to call yourself a Christian, to be an apprentice, whatever you want to call that, means this, to walk a cruciform life of light that pushes back the darkness in our own lives and in the world. And we're going to unpack this by looking at the cruciform life. Uh, number one, the antidote to the chaos. Number two, and ex the exposing light. Number three. Follow me here in verse 1, chapter 5, just the first couple verses. Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That now, that as we are part of the new humanity, now that we are beloved children, and this is Paul again reminding us, of something so fundamental that we are never called to change, we're never called to behavior apart from who we are, right? That's religion, and Paul doesn't do religion. Paul says because you are new, because you are beloved, because you are part of the new humanity, now we act different. Who we are shapes what we do. He doesn't do this do what I tell you to do because I said so. Now, I may try to do that with my kids, and it's, I tell you, it's not very effective. But it's also not very effective with us. We, we don't change by someone just telling us to do something. It has to come out of who we are. And because we are beloved children, we are called to imitate God. And the primary way that that happens is, is what Paul says here, that we walk in love. Walk, what does that even mean? I mean, it sounds so beautiful. It sounds like something you'd put on your mug or your t-shirt or your hat, whatever. But what is it, you know, a plaque where you hang your, 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 your keys on? But what does it mean to walk in love? Things look so pretty from 30,000 30, feet, but when we bring them close, we begin to feel uncomfortable. How do we know we're walking in love? Here, Paul says very clearly, we are to love as Christ loved us. And what does that look like? Sacrifice. He gave himself up for us. Like that's what it means when we are walking in love. It means that we are sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. Our quote-unquote rights, our privileges that we take for granted. If someone were to ask about your life, about our life together as a community, would sacrifice be something that marks us? Would it, would it, would it, would it curry a mention? We love to hear stories of sacrifice. We love to tell stories of sacrifice, even, even in our age of hyper-individualism. And me first. Sacrifice is seen as something that is good. From afar, sacrifice is beautiful, but bring it near, and it feels like a thousand deaths. And for me to sacrifice my time or my energy or my preferences feels like a thousand deaths. But it is through death that our true life is found. True life, abundant life, travels 
through the abode of death. Our culture wants to do a detour around death. But true love, true life, true joy is found through death. Oftentimes it's our own death. Our own thousand deaths that we have to go through in order to sacrifice ourselves for others. A life that continues to hope in the face of death because somewhere in the Middle East there's an empty tomb. Sacrifice. That's the shape of the life of the follower of Jesus. Now we live as new humans and our, our, our whole life is shaped like the cross. Our life is cruciform now. That, that, that is the architecture of our souls. And while we are living our daily, normal, mundane lives, it may not seem so. It reminds me of a time when I visited New York. And as a New Yorker, uh, you know, people come to me and say, oh, I'm visiting New York. Where can I go? I don't know. I'm from the hood. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go to the city. I don't, I don't know any of the spots. Like, I grew up there, so I don't know how to be a tourist in that city. So when I visited, um, I became a tourist, right? I, I didn't do a camera thing, but I did have an I Love New York t-shirt. And I was walking to New York like I'd never been there before. And I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, right across the street from Rockefeller Center, right in Midtown. Gorgeous. I mean, I could spend hours in there. It was absolutely beautiful. And then I go across the street, and I go to the top of the rock up on Rockefeller Center, and I see it. Like, I see it for the, it almost felt like I saw it for the first time. And this is a photo of it here. I was stunned. I was flabbergasted when I saw this, and I saw the architecture of this place. You, you don't really notice it from the inside when you're, when you're in, in the corners and you're looking at the colors and the lights and, and, and the paintings. But now, as, from a certain vantage point, I saw, wow, this, this church is shaped, it's cruciform. And that is the shape of our lives now. That even when we're in our lives and we don't experience it as cruciform often, that is the shape of our life. It is cruciform. It is to be shaped by Calvary. But this life as the beloved children does not go unchallenged, right? The, the powers of sin and Satan and death and our old humanity, it won't go down so easily as we try to live lives of sacrifice, as we attempt to shape our lives around the cross. Even as the powers are disarmed by the cross, right? We read that in the book of Colossians. They are alive and well and they seek to do whatever to distract us. Listen to me. They do, they seek to do anything they can to distract us from what God has for us. We need to be aware of this. And this is why Paul ends here with the powers and the principalities. Because there are real forces in the world that seek to distract us and take the things that God has for us in Christ. That he would seek to numb us. And our place in the renewal of the world. Because even as our lives are cruciform, we can often ourselves default to all old ways of being. I, I'm not alone here. I know I'm not alone here. I know you guys. I'm not preaching to, to a mass of people that I don't know. I know you and I love you and we are all in this boat together. Because there are ways that the devil and Satan and the powers distract us. There are forces that would take God's good gifts to us, turn them sideways, and introduce chaos into our lives. And so Paul goes on 
in verse 3. He says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so Paul here talks, and we should never take these verses out of context. We, we need to see them where they lay right here. And Paul here talks about the chaos that seeks to steal our joy. The chaos that as people of light, as we live as people of darkness, the, and chaos is unleashed in the world. And he zeroes in here on three of the many gifts that we have been given that can, in the wrong hands, release chaos and hell, literally into our world. I want us to see these things, not as just vices, as gifts that have gone wrong. Because you need to understand something, that sin and Satan and the devil, they're not original. They're bootleggers, okay? They, own, they, can, they can't create anything. They can only take what is good and twist it in such a way that it becomes a vice and that the wrath of God comes. So you need to understand something that when we read this, we're not reading, sex is not bad. Money is not bad. Speech, our tongues are not bad. But what happens is that in the hands of the powers and the principalities and our old flesh, they get turned in such a way that now the wrath of God comes because of them. So we need to understand these rightly. These three gifts, sex, speech, money. That when we use these things in ways that are contrary to their, their design, they introduce into our lives a chaos that seeks to destroy us. These three things, sex, speech, and money, they can so easily entangle us in ways that are contrary to the kingdom of God. And so Paul mentions here, Sexual immorality twice in these two short verses, verse 3 and verse 5. And this word that we translate here as sexual immorality is the same word that we get pornography from, pornea. And major, you can imagine this, major ancient cities like Corinth and Ephesus were full of places, temples that included cult prostitutes. And so we need to get into their into their culture, into their mindset. Ephesus in particular, you remember from week one, if, no, no one wrote this down because it was just a boring historical fact, but Ephesus, its, it's, uh, its major goddess was Artemis, or known as Diana. And she was the goddess of fertility. And so you can imagine what strong emphasis there was placed on the act of sex in the civic life of its citizens. It would have been a very, very normal thing for someone to go to the temple and visit cult prostitutes. It was a, it, this is what you did as a good citizen. But this is a problem, that people who were in the church of Ephesus continued to do that. Paul wouldn't have had to writ, write this if people weren't struggling. With, with, we have to understand this. When we read scripture and we read something like this, it's because they struggled too. There were people in the church of Ephesus who were still going to the temple and visiting cult 
prostitutes. And Paul is like, hold on. You've, you've got this backwards. You're living as if you're in the dark, but, but you're in the light. People who would have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the domain of light were still frequenting, much like in our day, where we can pledge allegiance to Jesus, and yet we can casually huck up, or we can often use pornography, where there are people who pledge allegiance to Jesus but still give themselves over to ways of chaos. We can be light and yet act like we're in the dark. And we know from experience how this introduces all kinds of chaos into our lives. There's, I, I feel safe in this room because it is every single one of us. There's no one who is immune to this. And what exactly then is sexual immorality? Let me just be very clear here. That sexual immorality is any sexual act that occurs outside of a covenantal union between one husband and one wife. All sexual activity outside of that union is using this gift in a way that introduces harm into our lives. And so Paul is by no means whatsoever anti-sex, by no means, but in order to enjoy everything that sex is and everything that it represents, the invitation, the invitation to us is to do so in a way that honors God and enriches rather than diminishes our humanity. Furthermore, listen, what we do with our bodies is no longer our decision. Like, did, did, we, did we know that, by the way? That what I do with my body is no longer up to me ultimately. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know? Because Corinth was wild, right? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to what he says. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God in Christ has redeemed you. He has bought you back. Kath and I, we rent. I'm not sure if we'll ever own a home. I don't lose too much sleep over it. Uh, but, you know, like we, we're renters. And renting is a strange experience because you want to make it your own. You want to make it your own home. You want to you make this house into a home. And, and Kath has done such a great job as we've moved in to make our place homely, you know, homely for us. And yet, one day we'll have to move, right? Like one day we'll have to, you know, the lease is going to be up. They're going to want to renovate or they want to, you know, or our kids are going to trash the place, you know, whatever. We're going to have to move someday. Why? Because our name is not on the deed. We lease the place. We don't own it. And so often this is how we treat our relationship with our bodies and Jesus. We lease our bodies to Jesus. His name is not on the deed. We, we still feel like we own ourselves because we lease our body to Jesus. At best, we're co-owners. But Paul says here, this is, you're not renting your body to Jesus. It is his. His name is now on the deed of your flesh. It's his. You are his. And that is a beautiful place to be in. It is the safest place to be in. There's a lot of trauma in this room there are ways that we have been abused and we have abused. And we have misused the gifts that God has given us. And this is the good news, that we are his. And so Paul, calling us to avoid sexual immorality, is not a ploy to steal our joy, but to protect it. To pursue joy 
It's a call to avoid harming ourselves. Because our sexuality is not something to suppress. Our sexuality is a gift to be stewarded. A gift that in the hand of the powers and the principalities and our old human can be experienced as a curse. As a life sentence to loneliness and pain. But it is so good. The fact of our, sexu our sexuality is so good and so powerful and so potent that it can be one of the greatest tools in the hands of the enemy. But it's not only our sexuality when it runs amok that it unleashes chaos into the world. It's, it's not only what we do with our bodies, but it's what we do with our speech, what we do with our tongues. Words are powerful. And words we know in any kinds of relationships that we may be in can heal or they can bring destruction. And we've all grown up on that lie that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And those, those words, they sound like, like a little traumatized kid who has grown up and tried to protect themselves. But the reality is that words can hurt me. Words have hurt you. They have broken relationships. They have harmed people. We have used our words to make people feel small and unseen. And so what kind of speech is fitting then for those living in the new light of the kingdom of God? And Paul tells us what it's not. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. All these things that in our age of overreacting to legalism, we need to be careful of. We need to take care of how we use our very words. Are things, are, are people enriched, encouraged, lifted up by our words? Or you know, our words should be, rather, like a gift to someone. My words have not been gifts to people. And gossip, even while it's not explicitly stated here in this text, I'm not sure if that's on Paul's mind here, uh, but I want to speak to this for just a moment. Surely it's one of the worst ways that we can use our speech, particularly in churches because we house that in the form of prayer requests and concern. I'm concerned for this brother, right? And, and we may find it funny, but it, it is anything but funny. What does it look like to adorn the gospel with our speech? I want you to imagine a world, a community, where we dedicate our speech to speak only the good. How do you think that would transform our life together? How do you think that would transform your life if we used our speech for good? So it's not only our sexuality that's to be stewarded as a gift. It's not only our speech that is to be employed as a gift. The last thing that Paul wants to talk about in this section uh, as one of the things that keep us uh, from everything that God has for us is covetousness. And he speaks about more than money, but I, I want to zero in on money because money particularly can often be the object of our coveting in our culture. In fact, he goes on to call the person who covets an idolater. Paul says that greed is idolatry. And simply put, idolatry is this. Idolatry is taking something that is created and you're investing it with ultimate value. So that you say things like, if I just had this thing, I would be happy. Right? So if I just had more money, I, I, I would finally be happy. If I was in a relationship, I would finally be happy. If I was in a different relationship, I would finally be happy. If I had kids, I would finally be happy. If I didn't have these kids, I would finally be happy. 
If I had a home, if I had a different car, whatever it is, if I had a spouse or a different spouse, if I had kids or ministry or a different ministry, if I have my comforts, my securities, those things are the things that we, we invest in them ultimate value and ultimate worth. And we say that if I have this, I will be full. I will be secure. I will be finally happy. And Paul says that the person who is marked by coveting is an idolater because to make anything, to invest any created thing with that much investment is to actually put that thing in the place of God. And so sex and speech and money are good things. They're good things for us to use well for the good of others. But in the kingdom of darkness and according to the values of the old humanity, these three things have the potential to usher hell on earth literally. From wars to the yearly growing list of STDs or STIs, from traumatized children to dehumanizing hypercapitalism, from the trading of children for sexual gratification for the perverse men and women of this world to the proliferation of pornography. We should use our sexuality for the flourishing of humanity, and yet we have used it to degrade and destroy each other. Paul's not calling us to be wet blankets on fun. Paul is calling us to protect the very goodness that God has created in us. We should use our speech to lift one another up, but so often I will use it to make others feel small. We can use it to make someone's life such a living hell that the only reprieve that they can think about is taking their own lives. While we use, we can use our resources for the good of others, we often build bigger barns and hoard our resources to the detriment of those who go without. You see, this is the thing, that good things like sex and money and speech, when they're in the hands of our fallen flesh, being animated by the powers and the principalities of the world, they unleash hell. And Paul goes on to say, hey, don't let anyone fool you. Don't let anyone fool you by telling you these things aren't that bad. It's not that bad. That, that joke isn't, isn't that bad. S sleeping with that person is, is not that bad. You, you, hoarding your, it's not that bad. Because he says, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want to talk about that for just a moment. Because when we think about the wrath of God, we often think of God's active, punitive judgment at the end of time. Right? That, that's when we think about the wrath of God. That God's angry, and at the end, he's going to unfurl his fury on the world. And while I'm not denying that God actively opposes evil and one day will oppose evil for good and enact judgment. I'm not saying that he doesn't do that, but when scripture speaks of the wrath of God, it speaks of it in slightly more complicated ways. We've talked about this before, but I want to show you where I am getting this from. I'm going to read from the uh, book of Romans. Now, this is where I believe Paul speaks most clearly about the wrath of God, and I want us to notice a couple things about the nature of the wrath of God. This is from Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 starts like this, for the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen to this. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And Paul continues there until verse 32. In the clearest context, where Paul is speaking of the wrath of God, the first action that God displays here is a handing over. The dominant emotion, the dominant picture that we have of the wrath of God as we experience it today is anger, where the wrath of God is more like a deep sigh. And he gives them up. In verse 24, 26, 28, in the clearest context where Paul is talking about the wrath of God, he uses words, and God gave them up. And God gave them up. And God gave them over. So the wrath of God is coming, but we also don't need to wait for it. We live with this now and not yet. Remember, we, we've been talking about this the whole time, where we experience the kingdom of God now, but one day we will finally experience it. In, in, in the eschaton, when Jesus returns. And one day, the world will experience the wrath of God, but right now it experiences it in the very things. It, the wrath of God is bound up in the things that we do, in the effects of the things that we do. We do not have to await judgment because wrath now is being revealed in the very things. It is bound up in the actions that we take distract us from the things that God has for us. So the wrath of God is something that is coming, but it's also bound up in the very actions. And you need to see this. Do you see Paul's logic? Can't you see the lunacy of giving ourselves up to actions that bring God's wrath when we are people of grace? Do you sense the incongruity between our own actions and what God is calling us to be? Why would we associate ourselves, Paul is thinking here, with the things that bring God's wrath when we've been called into God's salvation? In Paul's voice, there's this pastoral heart crying to the Ephesians to get them to wake up to themselves, 
to get them to see that they are loved, that they no longer have to, and it is no longer congruous with their nature to give themselves up. And can you see now why Christians aren't the moral police? As if we're trying to get people to stop having fun. What we would want and what my heart is for you is that we would honor God and actually protect our joy. It makes no sense to have been called into the light and walk in these things. The things that we do have to be grounded in who we are. Now, this doesn't mean that we Christians don't struggle right, with putting on the new humanity. It doesn't mean that we live perfectly. It does not mean that we will never misuse our sexuality or our speech or our money in ways that resemble the values of the old humanity. And some of you may be wondering, am I even a Christian after the week I've had? It, it says here that, that th those who, who practice these things will have no part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The question is, is, do we give ourselves unfetteredly to these practices? That's what Paul is saying. My goal isn't to scare you into sanctification. My goal is to remind you that the Ephesians struggled too. That I struggle too. That by, but by God's grace, we too can live lives that resemble the values of the light rather than the values of the dark. This does mean that if we're going to put these sins to death in our bodies, the, that these are the very things that distract us from what God has for us. This does mean that we need to embody these truths and never presume on the grace that is freely given to us in Christ. But what is the antidote here? What is the antidote to the chaos that when we live according to the dark is unleashed? Read with me again in verse 4. Verse 4, 5, 4 says this. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the antidote to the chaos. Notice, when we misuse sex and speech and money, what, what are we saying? What are the underlying assumptions when we misuse those things? And it's this, that these things are ours to use in the way that we please to use them, that we're pleased to use them. There's no thankfulness here, just presumption, just entitlement. It's my body, they're my words, it's my bank account, and I'll use them any damn way I please. They're mine. But Thanksgiving paints a whole different posture and a whole different picture. To say thank you is to recognize this fact that there is something outside of you and you have received these things as pure gift. Gratefulness names something as a gift and as such we don't believe that it is ours by right. We use it for its intended purposes. And so to go again to 1 Corinthians 6, when we believe when we really believe that our bodies are not our own because we have been bought with a price, that changes the game. Totally. It makes sense that I can't do, quote unquote, whatever I want with my body or my wallet or my words because they are no longer my own. The antidote to using sex and speech and money is not to suppress these things, but to use them wisely and in their proper context and thereby fulfilling our joy and giving glory to God. And so there's this inward focus to all of this, that we get to be formed in the image of Christ, but there's also an outward focus. Finish with me here from verse chapter, from uh, verse 7. Therefore, Paul says, do not become partners with them. 
For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try then to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And so Paul ends this beautiful section with what was probably a hymn that they sung in the early church that was uh, uh, shaped around the book of Isaiah. And here he begins to explain how living in the light rather in the darkness will actually affect others. This is not just about affecting us. That as we put our new humanity on and as we walk as children of light, the ways of darkness are exposed for what they are. This is not a call, by the way. And this has been used this way. This is not a call to go on a sin hunt in our friends' or neighbors' lives, exposing them. This is Paul saying that as we shine the light of the glory of God and as we reflect his likeness, those who continue to abuse sex and abuse speech and abuse money will be seen as what they are. The juxtaposition of light and dark itself will expose what Paul calls the unfruitful works of darkness. And so the very fabric, the very fabric of your redeemed life and our redeemed lives together, listen to this, is the medium through which God works. Because to follow Jesus is to walk in a cruciform, is to walk a cruciform life of light that pushes back the darkness, not only in our lives, but in those around us, in our world. And all of this, not so that we would earn God's love, but because we already have it. For it's at one time that you were darkness. You need to hear this. Like, this is me speaking to you. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light. That's your identity now. As someone who has uh, said yes to Jesus, now you are light. It makes no sense then to walk in the ways of darkness. Turn to him. And confess the ways that we have given ourselves to Satan and to sin and to death. If you're here and you're weary and you're exhausted, weary because somewhat you're feeling suspended even between darkness and light, you need to hear these words, that you are his, that you have been redeemed. And if you love Jesus and you've been snatched from the domain of darkness and transferred into the domain of light, we celebrate. We give thanks now as the antidote. Let's continue to press in. Let's continue to believe. Let's continue to partner with God as he renews all things and pushes back that darkness. We actually get to partner with him in the renovation of our souls and of the world. And until the day, until the day that he returns or calls us home, let us never tire of become everything that God has called us to be. And so I want to give us a concrete and very simple action this week. I want us to be formed in the story of abundance, not in the story of lack where we feel we need to use these gifts in ways that are counterproductive even to us. I want us to be formed by a different story, a different story from the one that our culture tells us, a story that says, I am the captain of my body. 
we need to unlearn that. The story that says that in order to get ahead, I need to tear others down with my words. We need to unlearn that. The story that says I need, I want, I deserve, and I'm entitled to whatever my heart and eyes desire and even more of it. We need to unlearn that. And thanksgiving is the antidote to allowing sex and speech and money to the antidote of, of the chaos that it would unleash. It is to give thanks. I'd love for us to make this a practice as we repeat these words together, but I want us to actually use our vocal cords today. I want us to say this together. There's a prayer that's going to come up, a prayer for thanksgiving. And may this prayer be the antidote to the things that seek to unleash chaos in our lives. Please pray with me. I think it's up there. All right, this is weird. We haven't done this before, but, but we're going to give this a shot, okay? Uh, so how about I say a line, and then you repeat it. So we're not trying to sync up, okay? All right. We thank you that you are good, always good, forever good. And we thank you for the gift. We, we may not experience, sorry, we, there, there are people in this room I know who experience their bodies as, as curses. But our bodies are gifts. And so as we, as we, as we pray this, just, just know that you, you are a gift to this world. We thank you for the gift of our bodies. Help us to honor you with them. May we honor you with our sexuality. May we praise you with our lips. May we serve you with our resources. Everything we have is gift. And we thank you. Amen.